Each of the family members is very appreciative of your attendance here today. To give thanks with us for the life and testimony of Mrs. May Carter, to express your sympathy to the family, and to assure them of your thoughts and prayers at this time. To her son, Jimmy, and his wife, Linda, grandson, Andrew, and granddaughter, Jessica, niece, Anne, and her husband, John. They're here from Perth, Australia. They've made it over. Niece, Sandra, living in Perth, along with their families, and nephew, Ronald, in Scotland. And all the other family and friends, including the members of Linda's family here today, we convey our deepest sympathy and assure you of our thoughts and prayers. We're turning now to the order of service, and we'll sing the first item of praise, which is the Shepherd Psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd. I'll not want, he makes me down to lie. In pastures green he leadeth me, the quiet waters by. And please don't be hesitating, waiting for the choir to lead you off. We don't have a choir. You're the choir. And uh, whether you can sing well or can't, just sing along and sound it out, please, on this wonderful Psalm 23. We'll stand, please, as we sing.
You may be seated. Let's bow together in prayer, call upon the Lord today. Our Heavenly Father and gracious Lord, we thank Thee that we're found in Thy presence, and we know that we come in sorrowful circumstances, and become as people in need of Thy help and of Thy mercy. And Lord, we thank Thee that we have been able to sing here that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And we thank Thee that those words and the preceding words of the same psalm that we have sung, they were not empty, nor were they hollow in the life and in the experience of our sister May Carter. We thank Thee that she could, with every single line of what we have sung, say, that is my personal testimony. I have walked this way. I have traveled the road. I have meandered through the miles, and I know what it is to have His hand, the hand of the shepherds, in mine. Lord, we thank Thee for leading her, for blessing and for guiding her. We thank Thee, Lord, for being her defender and protector all along life's journey. And when the difficult moments came, as they do to all of us, as they did to her, when the deep valley walls walked, we thank Thee for Thy mercy, Thy goodness, and Thy faithfulness that she experienced then. We think of the words of the prophet Jeremiah, and he's lamenting over the state of the broken city of Jerusalem, now just a smoking ruin everywhere around his feet. And yet he said in the middle of that, in the middle of great loss and immense heartache, that thy mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And we thank Thee that even when we are in that valley of tribulation, going through the time of tears, knowing the closing in of the hand of suffering and sorrow round about us, we can testify that we find those reserves of strength not in ourselves, but they have been brought to us, channeled to us, by the power and the grace of an almighty God. And so we come before Thee today, we lift our hearts before Thy throne, we ask a question that many have asked in time gone by, is there anyone can help us, one who understands our hearts, when the thorns of life have pierced them till they bleed, one who sympathizes with us, who in wondrous love imparts just the very, very blessing that we need. And we thank Thee that the age-old answer comes back to that question, is there anyone can help us? Yes, there's one, only one, the blessed, blessed Jesus. He's the one. When the waves of sorrow roll and affliction presses the soul and you need a friend to help you, He's the one. And so we come and we put our strength in Thine because Thou hast granted us any power we have. We acknowledge Thee to be the giver of all things, and we pray that Thou will come today, and in this service Thy name will be magnified. We pray that Thou will come and give gratitude to our hearts today, and we do thank Thee for the long life that has been well lived by our sister May, for Thine abiding portion all along the journey for Thy grace right to the end of her earthly road, 
and we thank Thee as well for Thy great and warm and all-embracing welcome. Well done, Thy good and faithful servant. Enter Thy into the joy of Thy Lord. Come and take our praise today. Lead us in our thoughts. We ask in our Savior's name. Amen. We are met together in God's presence to acknowledge His sovereignty in death as we do in life, and to seek His Word for the challenge and the comfort of our hearts. We know that our Lord said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And we know our Lord is speaking about eternal life that exists well beyond the grave for those who know and trust Him. And so it's His Word, and it's His promise alone that brings consolation and brings challenge to us at a time like this. We're going to turn to God's Word today to a couple of brief passages from this book, one from the Old Testament, the other from nearly the very end of the book, the New Testament book of Revelation. But first of all, Psalm 84. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. That would have been my sentiment just a few days ago. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand, I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in Thee. That really is the Old Testament equivalent of what we are now going to read in Revelation chapter 7. There John the Apostle draws back the curtain of heaven, gives us a little glimpse inside as to what is happening there. After this, I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, 
and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Amen. We know the Lord will add His blessing onto the readings from His Word today. Going to pay a tribute now to May, and this is material that has been supplied by May's son, Jimmy. Mary O'Neill Lewis was the youngest child of James and Annabelle Lewis. She had three older siblings, Christina, known as Chris, Kenny, and Edna. The family lived in Durban Street off the Newtonards Road. May, Mary of course, as she was by birth, but May, as she was known to family and friends, attended New Road School on the Newtonards Road. And as she excelled in the big subjects of English and maths back then, she would do what others didn't do, go on to secretarial school to learn typing and shorthand. After the Belfast Blitz, the family moved to Bloomfield Gardens. May's first job was in the offices of Douglas and Green, bleachers and manufacturers of fine Irish linen and lace. One summer's day, and it must have been a really bright one for what happened that day in 1947, on a trip to Newcastle with her friends, she caught the eye of a young squaddy who was on day's pass from Ballykilner Barracks. His name, of course, was Bill Carter. They started talking, and the following week he took the train to Belfast, and they had lunch together. Love blossomed from there, and the following year, Bill left the army and moved to Belfast. On the 19th of September, 1950, they were married in Westbourne Presbyterian Church and moved to live in Skegeneal Avenue. They then started a new job in Short and Harlands as secondary to a factory manager. She loved her family, adored those family gatherings at Bloomfield, or at Chris and her husband Bob's home at the Cotton, outside Donnock D, for Christmas and for birthdays. She loved spending time with Chris and Bob's daughters, Anne and Sandra, and Kenny's children, Ronnie and Stephanie. In 1963, Jimmy was born, and the family moved shortly after that to a bigger house in Hillsborough Drive off the Castlereagh Road. Following the death of her mother, the family moved back to live in Bloomfield Gardens with her sister Edna. After 11 years spent as a housewife in 1974, May went back to work, and she was working then in an estate agent's, Mackenzie Cash and McDole. In 1993, Jimmy married Linda. And in 1984, May's grandson, Andrew, was born. As Jimmy and Linda then needed childcare, May volunteered and left work. And so each weekday, Andrew would be left off at Bloomfield Gardens. 
1998, her granddaughter, Jessica, was born, and again, May looked after Jessica. Andrew and Jessica have been described as her little prince and princess. Uh, there was nothing short of this expression being true. They were her world. And while she would insist she never spoiled them, she preferred to say that she just treated them well. May had a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the mid-1980s, she started attending this church in Martyr's Memorial. She was a regular attender and enjoyed the fellowship here. The passing of May's siblings was hard for her, and in 2009, when Bill passed away, and that was after almost 59 years of married life, May find that very difficult. She didn't like making a fuss, and so she would never ask for help. Following Bill's death, Tom and Melanie Ennis said that they would give her a lift to church, and out of giving her a lift, a great friendship developed. Other friends, the late Charlotte Dixon and Molly Blair, made sure that May was hardly ever in the house. And through going to meetings in the Mount Marion Church, she met Alwyn, who also became a great friend. In fact, every Friday, Alwyn would call over, and they would spend virtually the entirety of that day together. The neighbors in Bloomfield Gardens, in particular John and Martha Brown, were always there for her. May would spend Christmas days with Linda's family, and she enjoyed the big get-togethers spent at Elaine's or Allison's home. In 2018, after spending Christmas in hospital, May moved to Hollygate Lodge in Duff that would become, from that time on, her home. May remained fiercely independent, but she did appreciate the care that was given to her. With the reduced mobility, she looked forward to visits. I think the residents sounded a little bit envious when they were claiming she had more visits than anybody else. Lockdown meant those visits stopped. But May kept in touch with her mobile, and I believe that Jimmy is very thankful that that mobile had an unlimited call tariff. She did look forward to calls from Anne and Sandra in Australia, from Alwyn and Melanie, although unbelievably she claimed that she hardly got a word in. That was never my experience when I went to visit her, be it in Meadowlands, be it in Hollygate, be it in Bloomfield, it didn't matter. I would have come out the door thinking, you hardly spoke a word, but that was me. I hardly spoke the word, and I didn't need to. Now, here's a little section that I think Jimmy is very keen to make sure it gets in. Apart from family and church, she loved football. And for an East Belfast girl, apparently there's only one team to support, the Glens. Her father had gone to the Oval, and her brother Kenny was a member of the Glentoran Supporters Committee 1923 for over 50 years. Bill, too, started following the Glens, so it was only natural that Jimmy and Andrew followed the family tradition on this. 
from the time that Bill died until she went into Hollygate each Saturday morning on her regular shopping trip, May ensured milk and biscuits were bought for the halftime tea in the 1923 club room. Each Saturday night, when Jimmy rang, the conversation began with, well, how did the Glens get on today? And I would imagine that was uh, punctuated by, the Blues are about to appear on television, I must go and see them, because there was a bit of a love affair going on there too. She also enjoyed watching quiz shows, doing puzzles, they kept her mind active. Knitting, for those who knew her, would have been another favoured pastime, especially for those fish and chip babies in Africa, and she was very glad to be able to multitask right there in that she was knitting and, of course, talking flat out at the same time. Last week, May decided she had had enough, and with her faith firmly anchored in her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, she passed away peacefully. We're coming to the message from God's Word today, and we're looking into the book of Job this morning. Around about the middle of the Bible, you'll find it, and yet it would have been written pretty much in terms of a timeline at the beginning of Scripture. So it's dating right into the days of Genesis. If you've lived for any length of time, then you will have needed to bury someone that you've loved. Maybe on that occasion you felt the sting of regret, maybe the sorrow of unfinished business where you thought they had much more to give, the paralyzing confusion and the emptiness of loss as well. And it may well have been at that time that your mind would have been flooded with questions about life beyond the grave. This has happened, but what happens now? My text answers some of those questions in Job 19, the verse 25 through to the verse 27, because Job says there, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Rather graphic language that he uses here, and maybe in some person's estimate a little bit gruesome, but no doubt reality. Job had experienced the devastation of the loss of a loved one, many loved ones, as it turned out. There was a time in life when Job had it all. He had ten children. He owned fields of livestock, an abundance of land. He had a house full of servants, a substantial mountain of cash. And then like an avalanche, in fact, properly like a series of avalanches, he lost his livestock, his crops, his land, his servants, and all ten of his children. And soon after that, no surprise here, his own health began to crumble. But in the middle of his pain, this profound statement of faith and hope escapes out of his mouth. And we have it recorded for us in Job 19, verse 25 through 27, what we have just recently read. And in this passage, 
Job is striking three big notes of certainty. And he's expressing, as far as his life is concerned, three confidences and big convictions. And those confidence and convictions, they're these. Number one, this body is not permanent, but transient. It's passing. We die. In Job 19 and 26, therefore, he says, And though after my skin worms destroy this body. Job had seen others die. Many had done so suddenly. Maybe in extreme weather conditions, as a result of accidents, for sure, at the hand of murderers as well. And so many of those had died in the prime of life, those much younger than him, including, of course, his own children. And it is always a most crushing, devastating blow when any parent has to bury their child. He'd been forced to look down what would have been the old-time ancient obituary columns, such as we have in Genesis chapter 5, where we read of Nahum after Nahum, but always, and he died, and he died. May Carter's Nahum appeared in one of those columns this week. Who can tell how soon it will be before others are reading our names there? We have seen, we have heard of others dying. Job knew as well that decay was in his own frame, and that body of his was a victim of disease. As he lived, he was dying. Soon that body, he realized, it'll be in the grave. And the process of decay that has already begun will accelerate. And so the words he uses are these, And though after my skin, worms destroy this body. No wonder the same man, Job, wrote in another passage that his day is on earth. And to get his picture here, you would need to go up the road towards Bangor, stop by Coltraw, go into the Folk and Country Museum, and you'll see an exhibit there that's this very thing. He said, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. He also said, my days are a shadow. And if that isn't plain and striking enough, in the New Testament we have James, in James 4 and 14, and he reminds us, we know not what shall be in the morrow, for what is our life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then vanisheth away. And no matter where I look in the Bible, I find the emphasis there is not on the length of my life, encouraging me to think, therefore, oh, you have plenty of time. Plan ahead. Plan big. The emphasis here is not on the length of time, but on the shortness of our time. During the FA Cup final preamble, you will always have abide with me in these words, swift to its close. Ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. And there will come a time when our little day of life will come to its close, and we too will be carried to the grave. We see that in May today, and no doubt we're watching our television screens, maybe extensively with some people, and seeing all that is happening with the body of Queen Elizabeth II brought from one location to another, and eventually to Westminster. 
Have we faced up to the reality it's going to happen to us? Or are we dodging that reality, pushing it to the back of our minds, programming our thoughts to go down this direction that that day is some considerable distance away? This old house I'm living in is needing repair. The windows and the shutters are letting in cold air. I say to myself, I'm going to fix them when I can find the time. But lately, I've got leaving. I've got leaving on my mind. This body is not permanent, but passing be die. Another confidence that Job had back then that's very applicable today is this. This body is not annihilated, but resurrected. We die and we will live again. That was another certainty for Job. The body is not annihilated, but resurrected. We die and we will live again. And his expression is this, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, that's the process, yet, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. So what's Job telling us there? He's pretty certain death is not annihilation. He's confidently saying death will not be the end of my existence because even after my body has been destroyed, I will continue to exist. I will live on beyond the grave and that dissolved body itself will one day be reunited with his never-dying soul and would have its resurrection. And in that resurrected body... He said, I will see the Lord. Horatio Spafford was a 43-year-old lawyer, lived in a north side of Chicago with his wife Anna, their five children. In 1871, his only son died. A few months later, the great Chicago fire of 1871 burned up Spafford's real estate investments. And through that fire, he lost his entire life savings. Two years later, Spafford and his family decided they would take a holiday to Europe. But Spafford was held back, as so often happens, by some last-minute business. And what he did was he sent his wife and his four daughters on, on the SS Ville du Harve, as was scheduled, and he promised, I'll follow you in a few days. On the 22nd of November, 1873, that ship was struck by an iron sailing vessel, and it sank within 12 minutes. 226 people were killed. When the survivors of the shipwreck landed in Europe, Anna Spafford cabled her husband, saved alone. What shall I do? Spafford immediately left Chicago to bring his wife home. And in the middle of a sorrow, as he's sailing near the place where his daughters had died out in the mid-Atlantic, he wrote the words to what in time became a famous hymn. It is well with my soul, when peace, like a river, attendeth my way. When sorrows, like sea billows, roam, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. From the day when May Carter was one for Jesus Christ, she was assured that it was well with her soul. And over the years, 
She became a witness for him, a warrior in prayer for others. Death is not annihilation. Our soul lives on, and our body will be resurrected to stand before God. How will that go? Are we ready? Have we made the necessary preparation to meet God? There's a third and a final conviction that Job here in his language is pushing our direction. And it's this. This body and soul is not worthless, but redeemed. We die and we will live again, and we may, we may live forever in glory. Depends on what has happened to our soul. Job 19 and 25, he says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And Job here is underlining, this is the reason, he's saying, why I will live again. This is exactly why I am going to see God. Why was that? Because he had a Redeemer who was and who is living. What's a Redeemer? One who repurchases, who buys back, one who delivers by paying a ransom. And Job says, for I know that my Redeemer liveth. What's he doing in saying that he had a Redeemer? He's acknowledging that he needed to be bought back, that he needed to be repurchased. He knew that he belonged to God by creation. God had made him. He was responsible to God, his creator, for what he did in living in a body. But he knew as well that sin had interrupted that relationship, driven in a wedge, blocked up the gate of heaven, sent him spinning towards damnation. But for his rescue, for his repurchase, for his regeneration for his redemption. This Redeemer that he's talking about had stepped into his miserable state by the price of his own precious blood shed freely on Calvary. This Redeemer had paid the ransom for him. Who was that Redeemer? There's only one. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Redeemer of whom Job spoke, God's eternal Son. He has delivered us from the tyranny of sin by paying the ransom with His own sinless blood. And I'm thinking of the opening line of our second hymn, which soon we're going to sing, Love divine, all loves excelling. Why is a hymn writer so enraptured by the thought of this love? What did it do? It's a person, of course. It's Christ, joy of heaven, to earth come down, Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure, unbounded love thou art. And then he pleads, visit us with thy salvation. Enter every trembling heart. To Job, that message was everything. Without it, he knew he was nothing, and so are we. Job says that he is my Redeemer. I know that my Redeemer liveth. He had a personal relationship with this Redeemer. Do we? Is Christ our Savior? Can we say He is my Redeemer? Have we called upon Him, claimed Him as yours? Can we say, Jesus, in dying, my debt fully paid, 
He paid the ransom for me. Without him, Archaeus would be hopeless in eternity, hopeless beyond the grave. What do we need to do? Come as we are. As sinners to Jesus, he will not turn us away. Come to thy only Redeemer. Come to his infinite love. Come to the gate that is leading homeward to mansions above, exactly where our sister May Carter has gone. Returning again to the order of service to the second item of praise, the hymn, Love Divine, that we've just referenced, Love Divine, all loves excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down, fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. And please, again, we'll stand and sing this hymn.
Heavenly Father, we pray that by the good grace and almighty sympathy and compassion of the Lord our God, that thou will come near our hearts and thou will comfort them this day. May we hear as well the challenge from thy truth. And may it reach into our hearts and keep us thinking and asking questions and making preparation for that day that will inevitably come our way too. We ask that thou wilt make sure, as the end of this hymn that we've just sung talks about, that we all will be, by thy mighty Spirit, changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crown before thee, lost in wonder, in love, and in praise. Take our thanksgiving today. For May Carter's life and testimony, for the grace given to her all through the journey, and may we, one day with her, take in heaven our place too, with Jesus' mercy and through his great salvation, we ask these things. Amen. There are light refreshments provided for everyone, so don't be in a rush to move on if you can possibly stay. And you would be going through the doors here, turning right onto the corridor, and there's a set of lifts in at the right-hand side or beyond the lifts, then stairs. On the lift, go as high as you can, floor two, and the stairs just keep going until the stairs stop, and uh, the food will be just beyond that. But thank you very much for coming. The family will now leave, and they will meet and greet you, I'm sure, upstairs.